man. This is some high-level basketball, man. This is that's uh, fun. Really fun. Really fun to watch. It's a lot of fun watching basketball when you don't care who's going to win or lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was a, a, a genuinely very interesting basketball game with a lot of back and forth. And I really thought that uh, even though Atlanta won, it made me feel more confident that Milwaukee's going to win. Um, uh, it probably in six games, but that's yeah. kind of where I'm at right now. That was my initial takeaway. What about you? I'm not really sure, to be honest. Like, I feel like if they keep playing Brooke Lopez, we'll get into it, but like, I feel like Trey Young kind of does exactly what Brooke Lopez and the Milwaukee Bucks regular defense gives up. It's, it's kind of an interesting clash there where Budenholzer is really going to have to change um, his, his theories, like what he originally likes to do. So I think it'll be fascinating. I don't think this Hawks team is like, you know, is some, this is some fake run. I think they're legit. I think they have a lot of talent, even with, that, with the guys that are injured. So, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, so I thought the entire game swung on an adjustment uh, from Mike Budenholzer to uh, to start uh, switching screen and roll, which obviously required them to take Brooke Lopez out. But I, I tweeted during the game, you, you can't run any sort of, of, of drop coverage against really high-end uh, uh, ball handlers, whether that's a, you know, a, a Trey Young or a, or a LeBron or anybody like that, anybody that can either – pass really well out of screen and roll or shoot really well out of screen and roll. Anybody that's, uh, that's high end in that regard. And, and it's funny that teams even try it. Like, why would you even go into that game and say like, Hey, let's just see how this goes when we already know how that's going to go. And I, I think they were hopeful that, that drew holiday would be able to kind of chase over the top and bother Trey young from behind. But what they don't realize is as good as drew holiday is Ben Simmons is better and one of the ways that Trey Young adjusted to that last series was to try to get ahead of steam off of that screen. Like as soon as he got that first bit of separation, takes a really hard dribble to get that space. And that's how he adjusted to Ben Simmons. And, and all of a sudden it was just all day long, just floater, 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 lob, lob, lob. And Milwaukee couldn't do anything with it. And then as soon as they switched to that switching scheme, all of a sudden he was jacking up bad threes. And really, Atlanta stole that game on the strength of that crazy and one he had, and like a, a and a, a, like a offensive rebound put back from John Collins, and a couple of crazy like that a multiple offensive rebound play that ended in the the John Collins corner three. Like they really stole that game, even though they weren't getting anywhere near as high quality shots in the half court there at the end. Yeah, so like I guess we can kind of start with the beginning of the game. So I felt like Trey just consistently attacked Brooke Lopez in that drop coverage. He just kept getting to that floater. And I'm looking here, Brooke Lopez was a minus 14 tonight in a in a three point mm-hmm. game. Thing kind of showed a lot. Um, it, like I feel like when you get let a guy like Trey Young just get in rhythm like that, it's tough to slow down as the game goes on, right? Like even as a person who's who's played, like you let a guy just feel that good. He felt he looked so comfortable out on the oh, floor. Yeah. Like he looked like he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Um, and I love how he kind of uses the other, like the defense's physicality against them, right? Like, I feel like he did that to Drew Holiday a lot tonight. Drew's a real physical mm-hmm. defender that really gets into you, and he really uses them against them. He got those kind of Trey Young fouls, those, those ones that the league is going to look at. But, uh, like, he got a few <laughs> of those, and it, it really kind of loosened him up. And uh, he, got a, he got to the free throw line a couple times. And I feel like he just can't let him get that comfortable. Um, what do you see there? Like, like, do you think they can continue to start Brook Lopez? Um, in, in, in going on into game two? 
So again, I mean, maybe if you want to try it in the, uh, in the non tray minutes, that's one thing. It's just a matter of the way they want to attack. Like, so uh, what we learned from that Clippers jazz series was that the only way that, or the way that a switching defense degrades the game and turns it into a one-on-one contest, if you can't win those matchups, you're going to struggle. And when they go to that all five, the Giannis at the five lineup, it's like, you want to try on Giannis, be my guest. You want to try Drew, be my guest. You want to try PJ Tucker, be my guest. You want to try Chris Middleton, be my guest. Your best bet is maybe Pat Connaughton. And even he will is not exactly just a, a sieve that's going to let you go right around him every time. So it's one of those things. And Reggie Miller actually called it out at one point. He said, Trey cannot get by Drew Holiday in one-on-one. And so they would get him into those screening actions, use his over-aggressiveness against him, like you said. He actually did get that crazy and one uh, on that uh, the third or fourth to last play of the game. But I, I tend to think that the Brook Lopez stuff, anytime you have him on the court, you're going to have to run a traditional pick-and-roll coverage, and Trey's just going to pick you apart in those moments. So it feels like you know, giving an advantage to Atlanta that you don't have to give them, if that makes sense. No, yeah, for sure. It's cool to watch kind of the adjustments to the adjustments and like what you kind of have to give and take, right? So they took Brook Lopez out. Giannis went to the five. Giannis got a bunch of lobs. But I feel like the give there is now like you give up a lot of offensive rebounds, right? Like I feel like that kind of Mm -hmm. got Atlanta back in the game as well. Now Giannis is the main help defender. And then you have, you know, P.J. Tucker's the biggest guy left. But him and a bunch of guards trying to, you know, I think Capella's the best offensive rebounding big in the league. Uh, in terms of like percentage and then you have also Collins as well a real athletic dude so it's just like a fun kind of back and forth that's why I think Atlanta can definitely win this series I I just think like their matchups even with Bogdanovich who I guess we can talk about later but like Bogdanovich not looking like himself even without Hunter they just have for sure yeah he does not look comfortable out there but they just have a lot of like problems they give them and then Trey Young is just a different like obviously Kevin Durant is the best player probably in the playoffs that was left but Trey Young's just a different type of animal there where he's attacking you purely on ball screens and your rotations have to be kind of crisp every time and his floater game just going at you I just think it's like a fun kind of adjustments uh the adjustments back and forth and coach Bud always has you know he gets he gets a lot of flack for not making them so I think it's fun like people are yelling Giannis at the five I just think like yeah that's probably the best option but there are also things right that you have to give up when you put him there well depth too you can put him there all game long right the 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 you you mentioned the offensive rebounding which is key like when you're when you're attacking a switching defense you could do it on the ball through isolation and attacking matchups but you can also do it off the ball in offensive rebounding and the two the two last the last two baskets the last two made field goals Atlanta had were an offensive rebound multiple offensive rebounds that led to the John Collins corner three and then on the final play when Clint Capella had the offensive rebound put back. He sets the ball screen out at half court on Drew Holiday. They switch it. Giannis is there. Giannis is a bit slow to get out there and switch, and he meets him at the free throw line rather than at the the three-point line, so Trey gets ahead of steam. Trey uses the head of steam to get to one of his floaters. But immediately after setting the screen, Clint Capella just turned and sprinted to the rim. If you watch the replay, it's pretty remarkable because Drew Holiday doesn't see it coming. Drew Holiday just kind of hugs on to – Clint and just kind of wait to half court. Clint <laughs> right. Capella just sprints to the rim from half court and gets the offensive rebound put back that literally won the game. And and again, that's 
That's not just a dude miss a box out. That's a way to attack a switching defense. If, if the, the Clippers used to do that all the time with Montrez, when you would get, they'd try to get LeBron or AD switched out onto one of their wings. And then Montrez would just bully whoever's under the basket to try to get offensive rebounds. It's, it's one of the best ways to attack a switching defense is if you have size, just bury yourself under the rim and get lots of offensive rebounds. Yeah. And to your point, Capella had four offensive rebounds, Collins had five, and it feels like they got a bunch more just like tip outs and, you know, just a bunch of second chance points there. And I think that's like the, that's the thing you have to give up, but I think that's the only thing they can really go to there. Um, Middleton really struggled tonight, but how about Drew Holiday, man? 20, 20, I think it's, I think that's really tough for the Bucks to lose a game where, you know, they get 33 from Drew Holiday. Um, that that's like really tough to lose. It felt like Atlanta, the only person they had going was, was Trey Young who had, uh, who had 48 himself. Why well, I didn't know he had 48. Um, he had 48 himself. Um, so like, what's the, I guess their answer for, for Trey Young going forward? Like, is it, you said you can't go Giannis at the five full time. I'm just wondering like where they go. Would you, if you trap him, like, I feel like his passing is even better than his scoring in my opinion. Like his passing is what makes him special to me. Where do you kind of go with that? Like what's their answer there? Um, other than just Giannis at the five, I guess. So it's the switching, right? Cause like you could tell like when he would get, uh, into those possessions at the end of the game where the Milwaukee was switching, he was dribbling out front and he didn't really know what to do. And his default isolation move is just a step back three. And now some of this is just a problem with the regular season. Cause in the regular season, the vast majority of teams that they encounter aren't going to switch. They're going to play a traditional uh, screen and roll coverage. So he can do Trey young stuff all season, but he might be in a situation here for the rest of this series where he has to attack in isolation. Now, if you're Milwaukee, it's all about matchups, right? Like as long as, as long as you can try to keep, you know, PJ Tucker, Giannis, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton out there for the big key moments. And then for the rest of the game, you just got to do a lot of help and recover. If he does attack a, you know, uh, uh, like a, uh, someone like Pat Connaughton, you need to have that back line set up to, to help in those isolation situations. But at the end of the day, like they're going to turn Trey into an ISO player at some point in the series. They did at the end of that game. And if they can force him to take tough step back threes, then they're going to win. Uh, that, that, that's the, the, what you had mentioned that was interesting is Drew Holiday going off the, 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 the point of optimism for Atlanta as a, a, a way to improve over the course of the series. I didn't think they defended particularly well. And ironically, right at the same time, Milwaukee went to switching Atlanta got burned on a bunch of lobs to Giannis at the end of the game because they were in some sort of funky, you know, in between drop coverage where they were giving up lobs to Giannis on that drew Giannis pick and roll. So it's it, it like Atlanta can play a lot better defensively than they did. I just tend to think that over the course of the series, it's going to devolve into a bunch of switching. And I do think that with Middleton, Drew and Giannis, especially considering the fact that Bogdanovich is still obviously hurt. I just don't think Atlanta has enough ability to generate quality looks in those situations compared to the way that, uh, that uh, Milwaukee can as the series progresses. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's where they'll have to go to. It's just, I, I think there are ways for Atlanta also to kind of punish those switches. Like we talked about the offensive rebounding. Um, I mm-hmm. think Trey can kind of get by. Uh, he hit his threes tonight. So I, I don't know if he'll shoot that well from three again. Um, I think he was, oh, wait, actually he was four for 13. So not great. For well, three, he missed maybe. a bunch at the end of the game. Like yeah, he yeah. Went, yeah. I think he missed his last five and they were, none of them were pretty. They were all tough step backs. 
So, so what did you think of like how Atlanta kind of defended Giannis for most of the game? I thought Clint Capella did a awesome job. Like, I, I wonder how much do you think defending kind of Embiid helped him with that? Because I felt like he kind of did the similar thing where Embiid obviously is a much better shooter, but I think if Embiid is taking you know step back mid range fadeaways contested, you kind of live with that. I think he kind of mm-hmm. did a similar thing to Giannis as well. Giannis obviously is a little bit more pound your head into the wall trying to get to the rim. But how would you see how they defended it? I, I feel like Capella should kind of match his minutes with Giannis as much as he could. Um, I'm not sure how many minutes Giannis played. Giannis played 41 minutes. So I don't know if Capella can play 41 minutes. But I just thought he was the best defender on him tonight. Did you see that as well uh, when they were yeah, defending him? He defended him well in the regular season too, uh, Capella did. Yeah. And, you know, and, and when you're a, you know, I think, I think Giannis is actually an easier job for him than Embiid was because when you're in a situation where you're going to guard a guy the entire series, uh, right. uh, you know, over seven games, he's going to get even better at predicting where his first step is going to go, where his counters are going to go, because he doesn't really have to worry about anything other than him loading up and trying to take him to the basket. Whereas with Embiid, there was that wrinkle of him taking those little mid-range jump shots of which he tended to make a lot of them. Um, you know, Embiid burnt him in a lot of ways uh, with those jump shots. I think, I I think that he's absolutely their best option. And, and, you know, when, when, when Giannis is the ball handler in screen and roll, when he is the ball handler, they don't have to, uh, uh, they don't have to worry about him really picking them apart. So they don't have to like a drop coverage works against Giannis, if that makes sense because he's not going to burn you with floaters and mid-range jump shots and because he's not going to burn you as a passer. There actually was a play randomly where they switched Trey Young on him and you could tell that that wasn't within their defensive scheme because Trey was like looking around to his teammates like what's the deal guys anybody going to help me out here <laughs> and then and then Giannis ended up turning in uh, taking a turnaround fade away from 12 feet and missing it anyway. Uh, but that'll be the interesting thing to to see you know, uh, uh, as a counter for Milwaukee is Giannis wasn't getting anything as the ball handler. So they started using him as the screener and they got a bunch of dunks out of it at the end because Capella can guard Giannis in isolation. But if you put Capella in a drop coverage against someone like Drew, and now he has to worry about towing that line between blocking the lob and defending Drew on at, at the point of attack, that's a much, much bigger challenge for Capella. And I thought they got good shots out of that at the end. So that, I'd look for a lot more of Giannis as a screener uh, to try to get Capella off of him. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like we saw a lot more of that tonight. Giannis also only only two three-point attempts tonight for him. Um, he hit that little mm-hmm. mid-range fade. It was like a clutch jumper. And I thought, like, that was a good shot. But I feel like that's going to – and I think he missed another one as we went forward there. But the last thing I guess I had for this game, if you've got anything else – I was wondering if the Bucks could like pick on Trey a little bit more than Philly could, right? Philly couldn't really pick on Trey Young on defense. I saw them try to do it. I just like when you try to do it with Pat Connaughton and like Brim Forbes, I just like I don't think that worries the Hawks. Like Trey was able to kind of hedge and then recover back to his man. I thought Drew Holiday also wasn't able to do it as much either. He tried to put him in the post. Thought Atlanta held pretty nicely. Um, so did you see like anything there where they can kind of work on that? Uh, I felt like they couldn't really attack him the way I thought they would be able to. They tried to with Giannis and Drew Holiday. I just thought like they didn't really hurt him that way. Drew Holiday basically hurt him on jump shots, which I don't think is punishing Trey Young as much as they can. Like, do you see anything that they can do there to, to kind of punish him more on defense? 
So, well, this is the same problem they were having with Brooklyn, right? Because with Brooklyn, they, uh, uh, they would, were going against a lesser version of this switching defense and they couldn't get high quality looks because they kept attacking the wrong guy. And so, I mean, they were going up against, you know, James Harden with a torn hamstring, which is every bit as limited defensively as the Trey Young is in a lot of ways. And, and they weren't even going out of their way to attack James Harden. This is where guys like Chris Paul and LeBron and Luka Doncic are so valuable or Nikola Jokic are so valuable because they're, they're patient enough to work the shot clock down to get to the right spot against the right defender. And, and that's the thing is like even, even on the play where Giannis got Trey Young, Trey Young had time to look around – talk to his teammates, be like, what's <laughs> right. the deal? Because Giannis is like, duh, I got Trey on me. What do I do? <laughs> like, uh, you know, post move. You know, like, like he just, he just doesn't, he just doesn't know what to do because he's not, that's not his game. It is, he's, he operates at his best when decisions are simplified for him. And, and, and that's what's so advantageous about that. Like you need to literally look at the floor. Oh, look, they're switching stuff on the back end to try to keep Trey out of screening actions. Okay. So we need to run like, a pin down on that side. So they can't, you know, do this before we set the screen, whatever it is, you need to have something set up as part of the play. You have 24 seconds is a lot of time. As long as you get to the matchup with, you know, five seconds on the shot clock, that's plenty of time to go to a really quick high percentage move. You know what I mean? So I, I, I just, I, Trey is there for the attacking. I'm just not sure that anybody outside of Phoenix is going to be able to properly attack him. Because all of these teams lack super high IQ guys uh, basketball, and I, I'm just talking about that very top tier basketball IQ guys. Because like even Trey, when Milwaukee started switching, even Trey was like, "What do I do?" You know, like you could tell you could tell he was struggling. Now I think Trey will get a little better at it as the series progresses once they do more switching. Um, but yeah, I, I think. I think there's a reason why Brooklyn got away with it. I think there's a reason why Atlanta got away with it tonight for the most part. It's just, it takes to really dissect a switching defense. You, you have to have that top tier basketball IQ type of type of guy. Yeah. It's funny. You bring up that possession where like he had Giannis on him and Giannis was like, not sure what to do. And he's looking at Collins and Capella and the help. And he just takes this like one arm hook. Right. And it just, I think it almost air balls and it goes way off. I thought like that's the best that's the best shot you can do. I thought Chris Middleton would be the guy to kind of pick on Trey Young, right? Like I thought a more like a maybe like a Giannis, Chris Middleton pick and roll, but Middleton tonight was six for twenty three. Um, he seems very like feast or famine uh, in the playoffs. So I, I'm not you probably won't get a six for twenty three game again, but I mean I don't think you're getting a bunch of like high percentage efficiency games either. So that that's gonna be tough for them to kind of overcome if he's not playing well. Um, that's kind of all I had. What did did you have anything else from uh, this this Bucks Hawks kind of game game one? No, not really. I mean, uh, uh, the the Middleton stuff you said. The last thing I'd say is I I kind of trust Middleton to eventually show up. He is, you know, I I have seen him over the last several years have tons of bad games. Excuse me, tons of bad games in playoff series and then still bounce back. I mean, don't forget like. He hit the shot that beat Brooklyn. You know, he, he, he knocked Brooklyn out of the playoffs with a turnaround fadeaway in the post in overtime, you know, in game seven. And I, I tend to think that, you know, he's a guy that, that kind of eases his way into playoff series as he slowly builds his rhythm. And, and I'm not necessarily worried about, about him in the long run. And, you know, it's not so much about him 
uh, you know, he's not really like a dribble out front, set himself up type of guy. He kind of needs to be put into spots. So some of that's on Drew. Like Drew needs to do what is necessary to get Trey onto Middleton and then be like, get to the post, shooters on the opposite end, go to work. You know, like some of that needs to be set up for him. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm 100%. I'm, I've, uh, uh, I'm super into this series. I think it's super interesting, super uh, uh, interesting chess match type of series because both teams have distinct advantages they can go to. Um, you know, but Trey young is so much better in pick and roll than anybody Milwaukee has. That's an advantage. And we, you know, we've discussed it at length. Uh, but I, I personally am leaning Milwaukee in six, cause I think it's going to degrade into a ton of switching and get really physical as the series goes on. And I think that, uh, I think that Milwaukee is going to have a little bit better time generating better quality shots over, over the course of the series. Yeah, me too. I, I, I probably have Milwaukee probably in seven. I just, I still think it's just a really toss up, really close series. I, I think Atlanta has like the perfect kind of personnel to uh, attack Milwaukee at what they at what they do well. So I'm kind of, I'm really interested mm-hmm. to see it. Um, I don't really trust the other guys, I guess, as much in Milwaukee to to score enough. Um, they can win on the road, of course. I just think it's going to be a really long series. Um, I guess we can kind of move to this like Clippers Clippers Sun series. I, what what did you kind of see from the first two games? Like, what was your kind of main uh, first kind of takeaway from from those from those two games? So, first of all, I I, I think that the Clippers are uh, a case study in how modern basketball, you know, uh, can succeed uh, even in absence of talent. That's not to say that the Clippers don't have talent because they do, uh, yeah. but but Phoenix is, has a lot more talent in my opinion, um, and I, and I think Utah even uh, pre. Uh, even with the injury to to Mike Conley, I thought Utah had more talent than the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. But they've won um, on the strength of dribble drive creation from from Reggie Jackson and from Paul George, and just spacing the hell out of the floor with shooting, and then a, a switching defensive scheme that has caused teams to have a lot of problems. Um, Paul George continues to to really impress me. I think. You know, Lakers fans have their fun, um, uh, and and he walked right into it with those two free throw misses. But I thought he was so good at the end of that game before the misses, and uh, that's just a really unfortunate. <laughs> it's an unfortunate turn of events for a player that has really stu- stepped up to the plate. Um, but I think I, I continue to be incredible. Uh, Phoenix has not lost a game since since uh, since Anthony Davis pulled his groin um, at the end of that game too. Everybody was making plays. You had, you know, uh, Aiton making a tough hook shot over Zubac. You had Mikhail Bridges hitting a three coming off a screen at the top of the key. You had, you know, campaign driving, scooping layup, you know, like, like as amazing as Devin Booker is like that. They don't need him to do everything. I think he only made five shots in game two because the role players for Phoenix, that Phoenix in retrospect might be in that top tier of talent in the league, not with their stars. Their stars are both, you know, in that 10 to 15, 10 to 20 range in the league, but down the roster, they're stacked at every position. Everybody's really good. Campaign is like a really good guard. And, you know, they've awesome three and D guys. Aiton is on his way to being a star. Like Phoenix, Phoenix is really, really good. And I think, I think they deserve uh, a lot of credit for the way things have broken, even though they've had some injury luck. Yeah, for sure. I guess before I get into it, like I got kind of 
ridiculed for uh, going to a Clipper game. What a what a crime that was. But uh, going to the how dare you like basketball, Raj? I know how how dare I go watch a basketball game. But like (laughs) uh, going to the game and going seeing like what the playoffs are in person. That crowd like really did change the game. Like we we make fun of like Clipper fans, but like that crowd was so into it. I saw it affect Utah on the floor. Like I saw Royce O'Neal get like holy crap. Like this crowd's getting super loud. I can't hear anything, and he turned the ball over. Like that's where I think it's so interesting. This game going back for Game Three. Those those players really pick it up at home. Um, they really feed off the crowd. Terrence Mann dropped forty in that final game six to kind of make it advance. So I don't think this series series is over. But I do think like I agree with you. I think Phoenix has the more talent. Um, I've been kind of banging this drum. Like I feel like they're way deeper than I guess we even thought. Mikael Bridges is just one of the best three and D. I don't even think he's just three and D, but just one of the best three and D players. Cam Johnson, and then like for this series to me, like I thought the key was DeAndre Ayton. And he forced them to go big in game two. Avicii Zubak played 35 minutes. He was a plus zero. I just think as the series goes on, I don't know if you would agree, but that's kind of a win for Phoenix. If you make the Clippers go big, um, it takes away the driving lanes from Paul George. Um, he, he had a bad shooting uh, bad shooting night in game two when they went big. Some of that is circumstantial. Some of that is not. Some of that isn't coincidence to me. I think his driving lanes getting shut off by them having to go big I think it's a win. And then you allow Devin Booker to got to get to his spots, which is that like mid range kind of mid range area. Like, would you agree with that? Like let, getting the Clippers to go big, even if it neutralizes eight in a bit, which it really didn't. I think it was 10 for 14, even when they went big. But like, I feel like that's a win for them uh, as we go forward in this series. A hundred percent. It made them, it made them abandon what the identity they had taken. And this goes to that question that was, uh, that arose after game six of the uh, Clippers jazz series, you know, is DeAndre Ayton a better basketball player than Rudy Gobert? And I don't think that I don't think that's uh, a case to be made in the regular season. Uh, yeah. But you but you are seeing, and I don't even necessarily have an opinion on this. So I don't want this to be taken out of out of context here. But I do think that there is a case to be made that Ayton is a better playoff player than Gobert because he's more mobile on the perimeter. He's better at defending in space. Uh, Gobert is much better at the rim, sure, uh, but but Aiton has has shown a better uh, ability to rotate around on the perimeter, and Aiton is just a bigger physical presence in the paint offensively. He's better at offensive rebounding. He's better at the little push and hook shots around the basket. He's got great hands. He rolls hard to the rim. Guys bounce off of him because he's stronger than Gobert. And he's just a bigger problem on the back end of those rotations. If you trap, you know, a, uh, if you trap Booker coming off a screen, if you trap campaign coming off the screen, and even if the backline defender is there to bump and chuck, uh, Aiton as he's coming down the lane, he's just so big. He, he raises his arms, makes himself available and he's got great hands and he just catches and finishes everything. So again, like I, I'm not saying he's better than Gobert, but he's shown himself to be extremely valuable in the playoffs in his first attempt in a modern form of basketball in a way that Gobert hasn't really shown um, over the time. And so I think that's been really interesting. And you said, like you said, it forced the Clippers to play differently. In the last series, it was a lot of Marcus Morris and a lot of Nick Batum, you know. But in, in, instead, you're seeing. Zubat's playing, <clears throat> even though he was, you know, a, mostly a non-factor against Utah. And then you're seeing, uh, <clears throat> I'm blanking on his name, the uh, the left-handed shooter. Um, 
on on Utah uh, for for the Clippers. Oh, Kennard. Uh, Kennard, yes, thank you. Your Kennard had big minutes in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the Clippers had to kind of switch gears in in a lot of ways, and so I thought I thought that that was really interesting. And that's just the problem that Phoenix presents to you. They they uh, they do not allow you to go small because Aiton can punish you. I mean, hell, Aiton literally physically demolished Anthony Davis for a playoff game or in game one of that first round series. So I, I think Aiton, Aiton kind of allows them to have multiple identities as like this modern basketball team with tons of shooting and dribbling while also having that physical presence inside. Yeah. And Jason, it's not just like Aiton just being able to catch and hit a jump hook just changes everything. Like oh, again, yeah. going, th- going there in person and watching Gobert catch it two feet in the paint, double pump fake twice and throw up, you know, nothing. It's just super frustrating to watch. He's too slow. Yeah. Like, no, but not even just that. Like, I feel like a seven footer, like you should be like, they would switch and they'd have like Reggie Jackson on Gobert and he can't do anything with it. The Clippers aren't scared (laughs) of it at all. And like the, the Utah players don't even look at him either though. That's the other part about this. Donovan Mitchell attacks his own switch rather than trying to get Gobert the ball. So it's just Aiden is just such a different monster in that. Like you can't switch Kennard, Red Jackson, guys like that on him because he'll just eat you'll just eat them alive. It's just mm. really interesting to watch the difference there. Obviously Gobert is a much better, I guess, defender in the in the regular season. Um but I think Aiden's done a good job. Like they, they weren't able to pick on him as they were Gobert. Um I think you I think Phoenix has better probably perimeter defenders, right? I guess you would say that like they have a lot better perimeter defenders than Utah, but still though, watching Aiden just like demolish him inside. I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious, like, do you think Ty Lue continues to go big um, as we, as we go to LA? I think you'll have to um, mm-hmm. uh, because of the Aiden problem. It's the same, it's the same problem that the, that the Lakers were dealing with, you know, like uh, it, they couldn't play someone like Montrez after AD went down because of the fact that Aiden was such a big physical problem for them. And, you know, the, you mentioned the defense, and I think that was one of the big takeaways I had from this series and just this playoff run in general. You know, Utah was a better regular season defense because of their funneling into Gobert and the fact that teams couldn't properly attack him. Um, but they, Utah wasn't good at the point of attack in that series. They were getting killed off the dribble by everybody. Royce O'Neal was getting killed. Ingles was getting killed. Jordan Clarkson was basically just a turnstile. Like the, the Phoenix perimeter defenders do a much better job of keeping guys in front of them, which makes it so that Aiton's job is easier, which makes it so that he doesn't have to guard in space as much like that. A lot of stuff is being set up for Aiton and playing into his strengths. Like that was part of the issue for Gobert is like half the time he's constantly helping at the rim because somebody just gave up a, a straight line drive with no resistance. And then, you know, he helps, but then the ball gets swung around and he can't get back out to the perimeter. And, you know, with by, by just, by putting up just a little bit more resistance on the ball, you make it, you make it a lot easier for your, uh, for your backline defenders uh, to, to do their jobs. And I feel like for Utah, like all season, they've kind of funneled everything to Gobert, right? Like that's basically been their game plan. When you watch Utah, like mm-hmm. they're, their guards funnel it to Gobert, and it's his job to kind of help. But you don't play these five-out lineups in the regular season. So when the Clippers went to this, they just had uh, no adjustment to it. But, like, my other thing I wrote here is, like, Devin Booker's putting himself into, like, the superstar shot maker category, right? Like, this is, like, mm-hmm. this is high-level shot making. Like, I thought Devin Booker was really good. I, I thought he should have been, you know, 
uh, all NBA or whatever. I didn't think he was this level of high quality shot maker. Like he's, he's raising, waiting for the defender to kind of come down and then releasing, like he's changing his shot in midair. He's, he has a spot where like, once he raises, it's over. Like, what are you seeing from like him? Um, and do you think he can kind of keep this up? Uh, obviously Chris Paul looks like he'll be back by game three but do you see this as uh sustainable this level of shot making well he didn't shoot well in game two but i thought game one he really went off um do you see like do you see anything that the clippers did in game two to make him struggle a little bit more or like do you think it's just he just kind of missed his shots i thought he got to the line as well to kind of keep them alive but like what, what do you see from devin booker in this series well i think booker so first of all i think booker belongs on the same tier as someone like Kyrie Irving, and by that i mean like in the, at his specific skill, which is that elite high end three level scoring, he's yeah. one of the one of that top tier of guys. Um, he needs to get better at the other stuff, the defensive stuff, and the although he's defended pretty well this year, in uh, the playmaking stuff to really kind of be considered among the best of the best. But I think I think he belongs in that Kyrie tier, and what that means is in any given one game sample, he's a high threat to be the best player on the floor. And we've seen that a bunch of different times, including that closeout game six against the Lakers, where it's like, yeah, AD went down. You know, the Lakers are trying to get their legs back. There's not a whole lot going on with them knocking down shots. But what really killed them was Devin Booker was literally on fire and there was nothing they could do with him. You know, I I'm a big believer in, in what he brings to the table. You know, in game two, I thought the Clippers just mucked it up. I thought they made it a ton more physical. They made it a point of like, we're going to put Pat Beverly on him. Pat Beverly's going to pick up some fouls. It's going to get ugly, but we just want to kind of throw uh, Devin off. And for the record, uh, in the long run, it worked in their favor because their role players had confidence to make big plays at the end of the game. Like, you know, in, in that specific role, Devin Booker's kind of a decoy. Yeah, he only made five shots, although I did think that one dribble pull-up or the, you know, several dribble pull-up, the one you're talking about at the end of the game, um, that was such a gigantic shot. Uh, but he, for the most part, he's playing decoy. He's, he's just trying to be himself, but to draw as much attention in on him as possible so that his teammates can get going. And, uh, and you know, <clears throat> I really quickly before, uh, before we're done with this game, you know, I, <laughs> that, that was such an officiating atrocity, I thought. And so many different examples of what's wrong with the way the game is officiated happened at the end of that game between the infamous, you know, uh, uh, there's a collision at a ball screen or off a off ball screen and no one knows what to do where Paul George just ran and, and Devin Booker's literally just trying to hold his ground and Paul George just hooks his arm and just flops and falls to the ground and gets two free throws to the, to the, uh, uh, Patrick Beverly, literally reaching in like when you reach in aggressively your face your face follows your shoulder you know why because it's attached it's attached to your shoulder and he reached in and on the play Devin Booker's natural arm motion barely bumps him in the face and he just flails and flops and even on review it becomes an offensive foul and then you've got the uh, uh, the, the, the awful play where the ball was knocked out of bounds and in every single level of basketball including the NBA that's ball to the offense, but we're going to review it and overturn it. Like I, I just, I thought it, and, and then the replay reviews just slowing down the game and making it last oh, forever. I think, I think, I think they said the last two minutes took 33 minutes of real time. Like I just, I something, these playoffs have been fantastic. So I don't want to rain on a parade, but something has to be done. Something has to be done to get the egos of these officials in check 
to, to, to do something to counteract what the, the way the game is being officiated uh, too reactionary to flopping. And, and, and I, I don't, I don't know what needs to be done, but something needs to be done. That's all I'm going to say about it. My solution is I feel like the referee should have a 24 second shot clock to like get those reviews done. I, for us on TV, yeah, we, see, we see two, rev- we see two close replays and, you know, we kind of decide it. I, I feel like it shouldn't take that long. And I, I agree with you on the, first of all, that flop by Patrick Beverly was absolutely awful. Like he did kind of get touched but i just felt like it was an awful flop and then i thought jeff on gundy who kind of made the point there is the the way the rule says it's the person who causes the ball to go out of bounds right so it's mm-hmm. not called that way but the referees are kind of told to call it this way it's a it's a tough thing to kind of uh, navigate through there but yeah this is a really interesting series man I, i'm really excited to see where this kind of goes i don't i don't think they're done um I, I don't know if Kawhi will come back he's already out i believe for uh, game three um i just wondering like what adjustments i guess um the clippers will kind of do to, to keep going like what other adjustments do they have i guess um campaign dropping 29 on them like i feel like they believe that won't happen again although like these guards have really been kind <laughs> of going <Laker> fans. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah man watching him just do exactly what he did to us kind of felt a little bit better he just attacked the rim man and you know he i mean he kind of played out chris like I mean, he might even outplayed what chris paul would have done in terms of production just watching him drive to the rim hit hit threes it kind of gave us give me a little ptsd but where do where the clippers kind of go to kind of steal i guess to, to kind of take game three well i think they i think they need to kind of mimic what the lakers did in game two which is they need to do a better job of 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 uh making Aiton play in a crowd and rotating on the back end which for the most part is just about doing a better job uh it's yeah. not necessarily doing anything different it's just doing what you're doing at a higher level um, I think game three is a must win for Phoenix in a lot of ways, uh, because oh, wow. I don't know what the, I don't know what the Intel is on the Kawhi thing. And I, I, let me clarify why I think it's a must win. It'll make more sense <laughs> after I say it. Anyway, I, I don't know what the Intel is on the Kawhi thing because, you know, part of me says, you know, uh, prior knowledge would tell us that Kawhi would never even dare lace up unless his knee was a hundred percent because of the fact right. that that's the way he's approached that throughout his career. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's terrified of getting hurt. It seems so he's always waited longer than usual, but at the same time, like Bill Simmons keeps talking about uh, how he has uh, reason to believe that he's going to try to come back in this series. And yeah. my thing is if, if you go up three Oh, Kawhi's not coming back. If you go up three Oh, Kawhi's flying back down to San Diego and he's resting, he's going into rehab. So like, Game three to me is a chance to 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 get like if 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 the Clippers get game three and if the series drags on and Kawhi has a chance to come back, that could get sketchy uh, uh, for Phoenix because because the Clippers do play really well at the end of these series as we've seen so far in this playoff run and if Kawhi really does just have a knee sprain, one of the things with a knee sprain is that you know you're not you're not. Uh, you don't have to deal with the, the, the long-term weakening of the knee muscles because you're still in shape. You have pain in the ligaments, but if he does try to come back, as long as he doesn't re-injure himself, he could still be a decent percentage of himself, like we saw with Steph in 2016 and so on and so forth. And the last thing you need is, you know, game five, series tied at two, and here comes Kawhi. You know what I mean? So I, I think I think game three is a, is a good chance for – for the, the Suns to just put the Clippers out of their misery and send them into the summer and make sure that Kawhi doesn't try to come back and steal this thing. 
Yeah, that's why it's so interesting that Chris Paul is coming back. Because, like, I keep thinking back. It, it is kind of crazy, right? The Lakers beat them twice, actually. And they're the only team to beat Phoenix um, in the playoffs. So, uh, it's really kind of interesting. But Chris Paul coming back. And, and like, the Lakers kind of game plan. Remember, we, we kind of talked about it. They were kind of living with Aiden scoring, right? As long as they were able to take away um, Booker and Chris Paul's effectiveness. And it kind of worked mm-hmm. for the first two games. And for the game two and game three, they won while still not shooting well from three. I just don't think the Clippers have the personnel to do that, like to where they can let Aiden eat while just living with Zubac trying to defend Chris Paul and Devin Booker on the perimeter. <laughs> and like that's where I'm so interested to see. That's what makes Phoenix so tough. Like we're watching Devin Booker hit these shots and we forget like the best mid-range scorer ever maybe is about to come back. And uh, that's the shots the Clippers kind of have to give up going big. Because if you go big, mm-hmm. Zubac can't switch out. You know, Chris Paul's going to draw a million fouls if he tries to hedge hard. Patrick Beverly and Chris Paul is going to be a fun matchup. Rondo and Chris Paul, too, who hate each other. But I- I'm just so curious to see how the Chris Paul – Chris Paul obviously is going to be super fired up coming back for his team who won those first two games. I'm just interested to see how they defend that, especially without Kawhi. So you have basically Paul George um, and – you know, Paul George trying to defend Devin Booker, and I don't know who guards Chris Paul, but that's where I'm interested to see. Like, I feel like going big neutralizes Aiton to an extent, but then you have to kind of guard their guards on top. And Phoenix is in such a sink right now. They're, you know, their double drag screens are like on point. Jay Crowder's making shots, Mikel Bridges. That lob to Aiton, man. What, like, have you seen that, like, that play? Like, I think I've seen it one time before, but I thought that was just an amazing kind of play to end the game, too, where Aiton got the dunk. It's just, they look like they're they're gonna they're gonna put this away, uh, but I think this is gonna be a long series. But it it looks like they're they're up for it. Yeah, I, I did that play. We, we've seen it a handful of times. I've seen variations of it. I saw uh, Vince Carter get one ages ago. I saw mm-hmm. uh, the Tyson Chandler one that's famous. You know what's funny is I I remember thinking the Tyson Chandler one was a goaltend, and but I didn't watch it live and I didn't really research it. So apparently yeah. that was when the rule was originally. Uh, you know, kind of in, like that people learned about the rule um, uh, because I thought, you know, w- when the lob was originally thrown, I thought like, oh, I think that I think that that got over the rim enough for Aiton to get a good clean dunk on it. Like, I just thought it would have counted anyway. And then when I heard about the rule, I was like, oh, this is over. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like there, if that's the rule, then there's nothing to even look at here. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but yeah, you know, you're talking about the adjustments, the, this is the beauty of having a team that makes you pick your poison and it's what makes Phoenix so good. And it's what made the Lakers so good is it's like when you're, when you as a defense have to choose between two crappy options, you know, that that's when you, when you really, uh, uh, have power as a, as an NBA contender, because, you know, here are the Clippers, a team that just destroyed the one seed without Kawhi. Uh, because of matchups, because the the Jazz did not have a good option to counter what the Clippers were doing and flip around to the other end. And <clears throat> here you are in a different series against a different team. But now they have presented matchup problems for you. And you're going to be sitting in there watching film going, OK, we got to play uh, Zubats because Aiton's killing us. Uh, but if we play Zubats and Chris Paul comes back, they're going to attack the living hell out of him. You know, and, and that's the. That's the, 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 the discussion to be had. My guess is by the end, the Clippers are going to go down playing small. Like if they go down, they're going to go down, I think, playing small. I think they're just going to try to really swarm around eight and try to get him before he goes up, stuff along those lines. But that's what the Lakers tried too, and they didn't have a ton of success. I can't tell you how many times I saw Caruso or KCP come 
flying by from the opposite corner on an entry pass to Aiton and try to knock the ball away, but he's just got big, strong hands and, and he's really coordinated and he's quick in decisions. When I said go bear is too slow. I'm talking about his decisions around the basket. Like go bear catches and thinks about it. Oh, he doesn't man. know what to do. Like, like Aiton catches and it's like, just, it's all fluid, natural motion to the basket with those little scoop shots and layups and floaters and stuff. And, and, and that's where he, where he gets going. Um, yeah, and he's have, a num- you, go ahead. I'll say yeah, and he's a number one pick for a reason, right? Like that's why it's weird. We kind of, uh, we kind of, I kind of forget that sometimes watching him just because of his kind of draft class. But like he's a number one pick, so he's supposed to be more skilled. It's just wild watching, like going from watching like Gobert catch it down low, not be able to do anything, or even Derek Favors, a guy like that, to like Aiton, who just punishes you every single time, who has mm-hmm. jump hooks, turnarounds, um, is able to make layouts. It just changes the whole game. It's you can't go small against him, and he's a force. Like he actually attacks the offensive rebounds and. He cuts, he dives with like intention to like dunk on you, you know, like, and you know, Gobert's a lob threat, but like his lobs are like, so like he has to be open. I feel like, right. Like Gobert's not catching and dunking on you. A lot of the times Aiden will like catch and finish in, in like, and ones in a way there where he Gobert just doesn't put pressure like that. So it's really He's just stronger. He's stronger. Yeah. Um, exactly. and, and I think, I think Bonnie Williams deserves his flowers too. Uh, oh, yeah. uh I, like every, Every little <clears> – <throat> for him to be drawing up plays for role players at the end of games, out of timeouts, uh, like, like he did for uh, uh, Mikhail Bridges on that big three at the top of the key, which was literally an after-timeout play. You know, th- for him to – the way he uh, adjusted to the Beverly stuff in game one by, by having them set the screen out near half court and Booker just picked them apart, you know, uh, uh, with a ton more space – to his last second play design for DeAndre Ayton genius to have Booker set the back screen. Cause Booker had just made the shot on the previous possession. And, and also, so this was stuff that like stuff that you, you notice that you can do a better job of noticing on, on rewatch. Like he, uh, Booker makes the pull up jump shot that gives him the lead. And on the next possession, they openly double Devin Booker on the right wing. And it leads to the wide open Mikhail Bridges corner three that he missed. But that is Ty Lue showing that he's doubling Booker. If you're doubling Booker, chances are if you use him as a screener, you might get someone to bite and take and double down on Booker. And and Zubac didn't double Booker, but he lunged at him on the screen. He lunged to the right, got himself out of position, and Aiton was if you watch, Aiton had plenty of space to really load up into his jump and that's all play design that's monty williams noticing that they're doubling devin booker on the previous possession understanding that if they had booker set the screen he's probably going to draw an extra defender with him and that leading to the game winner and and i i think yeah like i said money 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 williams has to get his flowers for the way he's coached so far this postseason no um absolutely and that was a beautiful play design they had like 0.7 uh seven seconds left so i honestly thought the clippers had that um it was funny watching cousins like not take away the one pass you're supposed to or like that's the whole point of being there is to take away <laughs> that specific pass and he just for some did reason did you see the baseline went, angle did you see that yeah. angle on the baseline oh my god like he he still went, almost got a hand on it and he was out of position that's the crazy part that's why you have to be in the right spot like he was way out of position but he's so big he almost blocked the pass anyway 
Yeah, no, exactly. And that's just it's just a crazy finish, and it's kind of the Clippers' um, luck there. But we'll see how it goes. Um, do you have anything else from this game? I just have one last kind of thing for you. Uh, are you are you done? Do you no, go nuts, man. I, I'm done for this game. What do you got? Uh, uh, all right, last thing tonight. Like we haven't. I don't think we've spoken since the the Philly um, Hawks game seven, right? Um, have I don't have you so, yeah. have you ever seen anything like the Ben Simmons kind of thing that went on? Not just maybe that game, that series. Like I. I've been watching hoops for like since like 2007, 2008. I haven't seen like a player go through that, especially like I've seen players pass up open shots here and there. I've never seen a guy like with that much talent go through this kind of mental hurdle where he takes four shots in the the whole fourth quarter of a seven game series. Like, is there anything that you've seen that you can relate to that? Or like, where does he go from here or like anything? Like, what do you, what do you think about Ben Simmons from there? Cause I think that's just a really fascinating thing that kind of happened to him and obviously his value absolutely tanked uh from there we'll, we'll see what he he's obviously not going to be back with philly in my opinion but like have you seen anything like that or or what are your thoughts on that so first of all no i haven't seen anything like that i mean the 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 kind of thing that i've seen you know uh, a half dozen times you know in my time watching basketball is the the Giannis against miami last year type of deal the up-and-coming superstar usually early yeah. to mid-20s has unbelievable dominant regular seasons, but gets into the playoffs and struggles against playoff defenses that we see all the time. That's kind of like par for the course, so to speak. Uh, what we don't see often, what we never see is like, like LeBron's game four against the Mavericks where he had eight points in 2011, but every yeah. single game, like that was like LeBron did that once and it was considered like unbelievably insane. Like we, we just don't see players of his talent level just like do this. And, and as far as the explanation for it, I think it's just the way he's wired. And, you know, there's, I think it's like 50% his work ethic. Cause he obviously doesn't work on his game. Like there was that executive that came out after the game and was like, can you tell me one thing that Ben Simmons is better at now? than he Mm -hmm. was when he was drafted. And the answer is no, you could argue he's gotten worse at some things. Uh, Like, you know, even though he he may not have a jump shot, but it's like, he doesn't need a jump shot. What he necessarily, it'd be nice for him to have a jump shot, but he needs to have floaters and scoop shots and hook shots and push shots and anything that he could get off against specific matchups in the, uh, uh, you know, inside 15 feet. He doesn't have any of that. You know, that, that's the, that, that's the embarrassing part, but like uh, the other half of it is the way he's wired. I genuinely, certain people are just, you know, it's like the LeBron versus KD thing, you know, LeBron, he's at the end of a game, he's going to drive. And if he draws a second defender, he's going to kick it. That's the way he's wired. You could tell him to do something different, but he doesn't want to. That's not the way he likes to play basketball. You know, the way Kevin Durant plays basketball is, is a more assassin mentality, and he might take a bad shot over two defenders. That's just kind of the way he's wired. The same thing goes, like, for Ben Simmons. He's wired like Jason Kidd. He wants to rebound. He wants to defend. He wants to set up his teammates. He wants to occasionally take a shot when it really fits in with the offense, but he doesn't have that aggression gene. So even if he did get good at that stuff, I just don't know that he'd necessarily start doing it. I just, I just don't think it's really wired into his game. And, and you know, he, in the post game presser, someone asked him, uh, you know, about him not playing well, um, yeah. you know, compared to the regular season. And he looked over at the assistant and he goes, 
you know, Hey, uh, you know, how many assists did I have tonight? And it was like 15 or something. And then he was like, how many, uh, what did Trey, uh, what did Trey young shoot? You know, and it was five for 23 or whatever it was. And he goes like, yeah, I feel like I, I feel like I did pretty well. And and he's not wrong. Like, like he, he did a good job within that Jason kid type of role. The question is, is he's got the talent of Jason kid mixed with a little bit of LeBron, you know? So he should be more than Jason kid. He just, I just said, I don't think he wants to. And I don't think he works hard enough to do that. Even if you wanted to. Yeah, like, my thing was he never had a jump shot, right? Like, this idea that, like, a jump shot is the cure-all. Like, he was a good player before, even without a jump shot. It's just, like, he used to have an actual, like, inside game where, like, I remember when we used to play Philly, it'd be like, who are you putting on Ben Simmons? Because you can't just put, like, a KCP on Ben Simmons because he would take you to the post. He would punish you inside. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you would he'd finish in there. And now, like, in the playoffs, it's like, who are you putting on Ben Simmons? It doesn't really matter because he's going to go stand in the dunker spot. Like, what? And maybe that's, like, a team kind of building thing. Maybe you need more space. But I feel like that just gives him, like, too much credit. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, putting a – it's not really feasible to just build a team around Ben Simmons, especially a primary ball handler who can't shoot. It's just so weird to watch, like, him – like that, that like dunk that he had that he passed to Matisse Thysbol, which like obviously was the biggest <laughs> play of that. But there were a bunch of other plays where like you know he he'd get the rebound, like sprint up court, fly down there, and then just do a handoff. Like it's like this like fake kind of drive, you know, just like sprint up the court and then it doesn't hand scare off anybody. No, not at all. And hand off to Furkan Korkmaz, you know, like and then go stand in the dunker spot. It's like what was the point of like doing that speed going all the way front and then just go and stand in the dunker spot. Like his skill and like at 6'10", it's not like he's undersized. He's not like Donovan Mitchell size, you know? He's a 6'10" dude. Like if you get to the rim in transition, like he can't even do 10% of what Giannis is doing in these fourth quarters. That's the crazy part to me is like this there should be in a level of aggression from a guy who's this good, who was, you know, put on a pedestal pretty early in his career. He was the best player on all his teams up until he got into the NBA. Um, you could even argue maybe that first year he was the best, he was the best player, but like just, it's just re- weird to watch a guy who I feel like was better his rookie year than he is now. So I like, it, it's just fascinating. I just wanted your, uh, your thoughts on that. Cause I, I don't know where he goes from here. Well, really quickly, the, the the last thing I'll say about it is that that famous play that he got made fun of for at the end um, on the baseline where he missed the dunk or didn't take the dunk. Uh, what was so funny is that kind of got portrayed to as like a, a choking kind of thing, like he got scared or like something along those lines. I literally think that's just an extension of his mentality. He it's sure. not that it's not that he looked at the rim, looked at Trey Young, thought I can dunk this, but I'd rather not. He spun and immediately was looking for teammates because his mentality is I'm not here to shoot. I'm here to set people up, which that balance is so far on that side now that it's hurting him as a player. And that's a separate conversation, but that's all it was. Like if anything, that play was just the embodiment of his mentality as a basketball player. That's just the way he is, is he, he's the guy that beats his man in a post-up spin and gets to the baseline and immediately thinks, who am I passing this to? You know what I mean? So, uh, but anyway, we, we went a little bit longer than I wanted to tonight, but I also want to eventually get around to having some people on. So let's try to do another one of these, uh, yep. uh soon. And, uh, let's be a little bit quicker on the, the games and let's get uh, to some of our listeners. Uh, but do you have anything else you want to add tonight before we call it? 
no, uh, this was fun, man. Well, it's good to be back on the back in the groove of these things. Heck yeah, man. All right, everybody. I will have the recording of this on our podcast feed shortly. Thank you, as always, for your guys' support. And uh, we will see you guys in the next couple of days. Thanks, Raj. Yep. Thanks, everyone.